0: And welcome to this week's edition of An Organic Conversation, a show about food, ecology, stories from the land, recipes, nature, sustainability, interconnectedness, relationships, all of them, and life itself. Whether you are aware of it on a daily basis or not, most of what we're eating is brought to us by the busy work of honeybees. No bees, no food is not a romantic notion, but absolutely literal, as vegetables and fruit need bees for pollination. For a few years now, the dramatic decline of honeybee colonies and their collapse has made headlines, as it should, given their importance in the ecosystem and environments of the world, but also as it should not, as the reason for the honeybee colony collapse seemed to be stemming from human activities, pesticide use, and industrial farming methods. We have covered this topic before in this show a year or so back, but we have decided to dedicate this hour again to giving bees a chance with an update on what current research is telling us with a wonderful guest, Jennifer Sass who is the senior scientist for NRDC, the Natural Resource Defense Council, joining us today in this hour. Today's show, Be in This World, Understanding the Collapse of Honeybee Colonies, here on Inorganic Conversation, where you host Helge Helberg, Mark Mulcahy, and
1: Sitarani Palomar. I think we actually did the show two years ago. So if you've been listening, wow. this is going to be very exciting new information I haven't for been listening for a while, but I'm, <laughs> back. I'm back now.
2: And, you know, that's news to us, but that's great.
0: Yeah. I, I know we had um, several beekeepers in the last four years on it. And really from the early shows on, um, the honeybee colony collapse disorder was an issue. And it's now even has made it into the New York Times. So... We'll dive into that, but Mark, you have well, uh, a reflection of last week.
2: Yeah, last week I was in three different states, and I was in the state of Indiana, and I was coming out of a restaurant, and I sh- and w- everybody was talking, and a lot of conversation from dinner, and all of a sudden, I just, out of the corner of my ear, not my eye, just heard this little bit of, uh, have you ever heard of cicadas? Uh, Absolutely. And... And so just caught them and wasn't really paying attention. Then as I walked down the street, they started getting louder and louder and louder. And I was just like, wow, these guys, okay. So that just kind of caught, st- stuck with me for a reason. And then I was in Austin and there's these birds that fly around at night as I was walking home uh, to my hotel. And they started talking and I, there was so much traffic noise I almost didn't hear them. And then I heard them, but then I decided to pay attention and just listen to them and i realized how many of them were actually talking at that moment at you A- at me yes <laughs> and then i got home last night and i put my head on the pillow and the window was open and i heard my favorite one of my favorite sounds which is crickets um, at this time of year and i just started thinking it's like even when we're not paying attention the world <laughs> the world is talking to us the world it's all happening it's just that sometimes we're either too busy or just not listening to hear what it has to say.
1: Yeah, it reminds me of um, something I remember learning early in life that the world goes on without you, you know? Whether you're here or not, things are happening and things are happening in places where you're not. So it's this whole other world of life that's going on that you can tune into whenever you choose to, which is pretty, it's, it's, it's a pretty, big phenomenon
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and those sounds are of course completely associated with nature especially the crickets i love that um i was in two states um in a mental state of relaxation because um, i spent a couple of days in palm springs um with a very dear friend of mine and there too it's desert climate and the crickets get so loud at night that it's, it's the predominant sound, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. it's almost like a backdrop um, to the mountains there. And, and then if you pay attention to what's going on in the bushes and the little, you know, the, the ground squirrels and the foxes and whatever else is coming out, so that world communicated through sound, you're right, is happening everywhere at all times, day and night. And, of course, especially when we sleep. So it's so fascinating <laughs> that there's a whole universe waking up when we go to bed. Loved it. Um, yes. Thank you for that, Mark. Today's topic is uh, along the lines of sounds critters make, the the sound a honeybee makes, bee in this world, understanding the collapse of honeybee colonies in the U.S. and around the world here on in An Organic Conversation Today. I'm Helge Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. And we'll be right back with more. Stay tuned. And we are back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg, I'm Mark Bockehi.
1: and I'm Cita Rani Palmar.
0: Our topic today: Be in this world, understanding the collapse of honeybee colonies. We've covered this topic in the past, but we want to give you a update. On recent research, and we have the senior scientist of the Natural Resources Defense Council today with us, Jennifer Sass. That in a minute, but first, as always, an update from the world of health and beauty. Here's our very own Chef Sita with her holistic <laughs> bite.
1: A couple of weeks ago, I did a feature on oil infusions. And I want to revisit that with something similarly delicious, and that would be vinegar infusions. And the benefit of doing a vinegar infusion, for one, other than all of the different uses you might have for vinegar rather than oil, is that vinegar is a great preservative. Think pickles, right? We preserve cucumbers in vinegar and create pickles. So you can use a vinegar infusion to get more life out of certain certain perishable items like raspberry, for example. So this is a really fun way to experiment in your kitchen. It is not as messy as oil infusions, and it's really versatile. You could make, like I said, a raspberry vinaigrette to enjoy the last bits of the beautiful warm-weather salads we have right now. You could do a tarragon vinaigrette, which is fantastic in potato salad. and pretty much an endless number of combinations. This time of year, I have a lot of lavender and rosemary growing in my garden. And so those two in particular are fantastic for the kitchen, but they're also really great for home cleaning purposes. They have such wonderful aroma and a lot of fantastic antimicrobial, antibacterial, antiviral, antifungal, anti all the things you don't want in your house properties. So putting it together is really quite simple. And you can use them for things like hair rinse, surface, cleaner, fabric softener. There are really fantastic recipes for the right ratio of your vinegar infusion with whatever other ingredient would constitute the rest of that brew. So make a weekend of it and use this basic recipe, which you can find online on our website at anorganicconversation.com. If you want to use it for culinary purposes, a wine vinegar makes a really excellent base for whatever herb or that fruit or vegetable you're going to infuse in it. Think fennel orange or onion peppercorn or if you want to do a vinegar infusion to use to clean your home apple cider vinegar makes a great base but check us out online at organicconversation.com where you'll find this basic recipe and i hope you get experimental in your kitchen that was this week's holistic bite
0: thank you sita and also of course facebook for any recipes and do it yourself tips that's Facebook.com forward slash and again a conversation.
2: So can you use just about any fruit in vinegar? I mean, could you use like a pear or
1: something like that? You know, I do think that the uh, the acidity of the fruit mm. makes a difference. Okay. I think you could probably do it, but you're going to have to do some research on that specific ingredient. Okay. I know that there's lots of really great success with all kinds of herbs, mm-hmm. but then depending on the fruit, there are slight different ways to sure, tweak it. That would make
2: sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Why would you ask about pears? Is there something something later in the show coming up? <laughs>
2: Maybe.
1: Pear vinegar is phenomenal, well, by I, the way. Uh, yeah,
2: I've, I've actually had a pear balsamic vinegar. Yes, And so exactly. I was wondering just about, doing like doing it at home, you know, I don't want to be afraid to do it, but I just also I'll just look up, and see if pairs can go in yeah. there and see how that would work.
0: Yeah, go to Facebook.com forward slash organic conversation. There are some, you know, recipes and stuff. Oh, I have never heard of that before. Yeah, <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> You're listening to an organic Conversation. I'm Helge Helbert. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And
1: I'm Sita Rani Palomar.
0: Our topic in this hour is bee in this world, understanding the collapse of honeybee colonies. We want to give you an overview of the bee's importance in the world, in ecological systems, and for our food production, and also, of course, an update of where science is right now, what we have learned, um, where uh, bee colony collapse may stem from or what influences it. With us is Jennifer Sass, the senior scientist at the NRDC, Natural Resources Defense Council, that's nrdc.org. For more information, who's joining us today from Washington, D.C., And um, Jennifer reviews the science underpinning the regulations of toxic chemicals at NRDC. And um, Jennifer, do we have you on the phone with us?
3: Uh, Yes, we do. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, wonderful. Just to make sure I'm saying this right, are you the senior scientist or a senior scientist at the Natural Resources Defense Council? I know there's a lot of expertise with that organization. Um, So are are you one of several?
3: Um, I am a senior scientist with <laughs> NRDC um, and I am one of several senior scientists within the health program at
0: great NRDC. yes and you you look at the regulations of toxic chemicals the data um, and out of that of course you advocate for health protective regulations um, which brings us right to the bees today
2: yeah you know Jennifer this this past uh, summer I was walking into my store and I saw this amazing black cover that had a bee floating in the center of it. That's the only thing you saw. And of course, Time Magazine on the top. But I couldn't take my eyes off it. I was standing there and then so I said I'm going to pick this up and start reading it. And of course that cover story article A World Without Bees was very enlightening. And this isn't a new topic. The death of the honeybee colonies has been big news for years now. And what I'm hoping that you can uh, tell us today is what's happening with honeybees and Most importantly, why are they so important to a balanced world ecology?
3: Well, um, honeybees, and actually not just honeybees, but native or wild bees as well, and other pollinators are necessary for pollination of a lot of our agriculture food. So estimates by government agencies are that one-third of the food that we put into our mouth um, is reliant on pollination from honeybees and other pollinators,
0: and and they don't just pollinate our food, right? They they pollinate other plants, other trees. Um, there is there a picture of what the world would look like without honeybees or wild bees in the environment?
3: Well, I can help paint a imaginary picture for you. You'd have to picture a world without almost all of the fruits that we eat, without pumpkins, without. Blueberries, without apples, without cherries, um, without, we'd have to have um, holidays without pumpkin pies and cherry pies and peanut butter sandwiches without jam. You'd have to have uh, many of our our crops as well. And a lot of our um, nuts, for instance, almonds, are reliant on pollinators like bees. The sad truth is that the native pollinators are also dying off. And we don't actually have enough native pollinators to pollinate all of the crops that we grow in this country. So we're reliant on these commercial pollinators, these honeybees that get trucked around to farmers' fields.
1: Well, that's an interesting question that you bring up about native, because you said it isn't just honeybees. The domestic honeybee isn't native to the to the United States. Is that correct? That's true. I
3: mean, it was a long time ago that the honeybees were brought over here, but um, they are not originally native. We have a lot of native pollinators here, too, including bumblebees and many other um, bats and moths and butterflies uh, that fly around and do our pollinating as well. And it's not just our food, of course. It's flowers, um, a lot of garden things and trees. Um, So pollinators are really essential. They're essential to life. They're essential to our food supply, but they're also essential to our environment.
2: Well, I find this interesting because I walk in produce departments every single day, and our produce departments are full.
0: So you're asking where, where is well, the collapse I mean, or uh, what yeah, level I mean, is I mean, it happening? I, I
2: think most people when you read about bees and yes it's a problem, but yet you don't see anything you don't see a uh, result that you can't get almonds, that you can't get uh, apples, or those types of things.
0: Yeah, what's the impact, Jennifer? Um, again, we're speaking with Jennifer Sass, one of the senior scientists at the NRDC, Natural Resources Defense Council, that's nrdc.org, for more information and to get involved. Jennifer, um, with the produce department still full, is there a measurable impact of honeybee collapse? What's, what's happening?
3: So that's a really good question. I mean, can we see the impact so far? Um, And the answer is the people that are hurting the most are actually the people that have these commercial honeybees. They're feeling it financially, I think, more than any other group. They're really suffering, in fact, and that's because um, they're losing about 40% of their colonies over the last 10 years. If we lose another 40%, Of their colonies over the next ten years government estimates are that we won't be able to grow um, our own food anymore that's a very serious statement in fact and it's a reasonable concern so these honey um, commercial honey bee um, producers are people that have tens of thousands of honey um, sorry of bee colonies which they take all over the country to pollinate crops. So what's been happening is as their, as their colonies are dying off, they've had to either do with less bees, work the bees they have harder, or import more bees. And so we're also finding a lot of imported bees coming up from, for example, Mexico or the south, and possibly bringing diseases with it. So these are all concerns when we lose our own colonies.
1: So, what, what what is causing this? We're we're seeing a dramatic decline in bees. They're they're brilliant, beautiful, sentient beings that function in this this super organism, and it's terrible that what we're doing is causing so many of them to their colonies co- to collapse. Why are they dying? What is the root cause of this? Is it overwork? Is it over travel? <laughs> is it pesticides? Mm-hmm.
3: Um. So. There's a lot of controversy about what the cause is. We know what some of the causes are, um, and in our D.C.'s position, and I think um, people that are advocates of both bees and also environmental protection, um, our position is that we should do something about the causes that we do know and not wait for the whole mystery to get solved. Um, And one of the things we know for sure is that bees are being impacted by many pesticides, In particular, the beekeepers um, have been very concerned about a class of pesticides called neonicotinoids. They're called neonics for short. And these pesticides were developed as a replacement for some very highly toxic pesticides, a class called organophosphates Mm -hmm. or OPs. The Mm -hmm. organophosphates were very highly toxic not only to bees um, but to other wildlife and to people as well. They were canceled because of their high toxicity. EPA canceled them for residential uses, but still allows them in agriculture. But many agriculture uses are being drawn back or um, limited by regulations, um, as well as by um, growers wanting to reduce their reliance on this highly toxic class of pesticides, a war era. Organophosphates are related to sarin and other chemical warfare agents.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: So instead, this class of pesticides called neonicotinoids were developed and are gaining a lot of ground. They're expanding their uses, replacing a lot of these organophosphates. And the problem with them is that although they're safer, they seem safer in terms of acute poisoning. You're, you, people, people and other wildlife aren't instantly poisoned by the neonicotinoids. The way they work is that they're inside the plant. They're applied as a coating to the seed, and a lot of times they're inside the plant or sprayed on where they get into the plant system. So they're called systemic pesticides, whereas other pesticides would wash off with rain and go into streams and rivers and cause acute toxicity, maybe fish kills or bird kills, but then they would dissipate these neonics, um, because they're inside the plant, they get into the plant parts. It makes the plant toxic to insects, so it makes the plant toxic to pests. So that's why it's effective as a pesticide, but it's also unfortunately just as toxic to beneficial insects, including bees, particularly because it's getting into the pollen and nectar of those plants.
0: So, yes, we're speaking with Jennifer Sass, one of the senior scientists at NRDC, Natural Resources Defense Council, in this hour, as we're looking again at bees and their role in the ecosystem, and particularly the collapse of honeybee colonies around the world. Um, Jennifer, speaking of um, neonicotinoids, the EU, the European Union, made headlines last year when they actually regulated um, neonicotinoids. And of course, some chemical companies uh, doubted the data and, and the scientific evidence that was presented, but um, regardless, neonicotinoids are regulated in the, in the EU. Um, why hasn't the US followed suit?
3: Yeah, that's a really good question. The, in the European Union, they put a two-year moratorium on almost all uses of the neonic pesticides, which was really good, I think, in my opinion, because um, we know for sure that these neonic pesticides are getting inside the plant and making the plant parts toxic to bees and other pollinators. So even though there might be doubt about whether the neonics are the only thing killing bees, we know for sure that they're toxic and they're getting into the bee home. Unfortunately, in the US, Um, the Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, which is the agency charged with regulating pesticides, has chosen to continue to study the problem. This is very frustrating um, for many of us because we feel that although the problem does need more study, there's action that can be taken immediately. And many of us feel that the bees just simply don't have time for years and years of study. In fact, The EPA has already been studying the problem for a number of years and hasn't taken any effective action Mm -hmm. to reduce the overexposure of bees to pesticides. Uh,
2: Jennifer, I've been um, uh, part of NCAP for a long time and have been— What's uh, that? uh, Northwest Coalition Against uh, Pesticide Misuse and— so I've been reading about pesticides and organophosphates and things like that for years. And this what, listening to you, this comes to me it's, when you talk about driving bees. I mean, so, I, so I'm always concerned about how pesticides are used, how they're developed, you know, the inert ingredients, things like that. But also it keeps coming back to me when I'm thinking about what you're saying is that we are driving bees from one state to another without any downtime in their workload. And and from the things that I've done in the research is that they also aren't always able to feed on the things that actually keep them healthy. Is there anything to that in this um, discovery on what might be causing the collapse?
3: Yeah, um, well, we're concerned about that in terms of, again, not just the honeybees, not just the commercial bees, but also the other native bees and other pollinators that a a lot of their habitat is being destroyed and some of that habitat is being destroyed by the overuse of pesticides so um, pesticides include not just the chemicals that that um are harmful to to insects or pests but also herbicides um so a lot of the um the plants and wildflowers that bees would feed on are also being destroyed. Um, For example, uh, if if you see a farm field and that farm field is absolutely clear of all weeds except the desired agriculture plant, then there's nothing else for the bees to feed on. So that's a real problem. Um, For example, when you mow your lawn, um, if if you leave your lawn a little longer, you could leave clover in it. And clover is sometimes one of the only things that bees and other pollinators have to feed on in the fall. So those are the kinds of things that if we keep trying to make these perfectly... Um, manicured lawns and wild spaces and um, public lands and agriculture areas, what we're really doing is taking away the natural food sources for these, these beneficial
1: insects.
0: You're listening to An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy.
1: And I'm Sitarani Palomar.
0: Our show is about bee, bee in this world the collapse of honeybee colonies around the world. We are speaking with Jennifer Sass, senior scientist for the Natural Resources Defense Council. Jennifer, we want to know what, on an everyday level, what we can do as shoppers and, of course, concerned citizens hearing this now uh, do to minimize bee colony collapse. Um, We'll get back to that when we come back right after the break. Um, Thank you for being with us today, and please stay on.
4: Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, walk right in to Earl's Organic Produce. Anyone can buy directly from us at wholesale prices. You don't have to be a natural food store to enjoy the freshest and most delicious organic produce. We are located on the San Francisco Produce Market at 2101 Gerald Avenue. We look forward to seeing you.
5: Walk-in hours are Monday through Friday throughout the night from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. Minimum purchase is one box or flat, cash or checks only. For more information, visit EarlsOrganic.com. Are you interested in making healthy food your profession? Bowman College is a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Their professional training programs prepare individuals for successful careers. as nutrition consultants and natural chefs, study at one of four locations in California and Colorado, or learn from home in a self-paced mentor distance learning program. Find out more about their classes on holistic nutrition and culinary arts at bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. Working from home is awesome, except when it's not. (laughs) If you're working from your couch or your coffee shop, chances are you're not your most productive. For thousands of entrepreneurs, co-working is the answer next space is a co-working company with offices in la and the greater san francisco bay area find an innovative workspace a built-in community and great networking opportunities at next space visit nextspace.us for more information next space your best work happens here
0: And we're back here to an Organic Conversation. I'm Helge Helber. I'm Mark Moncahy.
1: And I'm Rani Palomar.
0: Our topic is bee in this world, the collapse of honeybee colonies around the world. Uh, our topic today in this hour as we're looking at the most uh, current research and nobody would be better suited than Jennifer Sass to be our guest today she's the senior a senior scientist at the NRDC the natural resources defense council an organization that is very much involved in policy making and advocacy around pesticide use and the effect on humans and the environment is that a fair summary Jennifer Oh, yes, thank you. <laughs> More information, of course, on NRDC is nrdc.org, where you can also become a member if that is something you are very interested in. Um, Jennifer, we talked about, and, and Mark brought that up right before the break, again, bees are being shipped uh, as as kind of commercial pollinators. Um, f- large farmers often hire commercial bee operators to bring you know, hundreds of thousands of bees to an orchard the size of several thousand acres to pollinate, for example, almonds. And then when they're done, after a few days or a week or so, they all the bees will be shipped back up to somewhere else um, to do the next job in the next field. You were saying, yes, that is stressful. and um, But really the use of pesticide, the use of food or the, the availability of food sources for bees year-round, their natural cycle... Um, both through shipping and uh, even more so perhaps through uh, pesticides, is heavily impacted. And we were asking on an everyday level, what can we as shoppers and concerned citizens do to minimize bee colony collapse?
3: Well, there's a number of things um, that are really important that we can do, um, both um, to help honeybees and bumblebees, native bees and other pollinators as well, Um, One of the things um, I mentioned earlier is leaving some clover in our lawns. And um, definitely try not to use any pesticides around your lawn and gardens. That includes things that you treat your rose bushes with, things that um, are also treating lawns, lawn fertilizers and things. Um, Really what looks at first glance like a, a pristine, beautiful green lawn is really a lawn that's devoid of food for bees and other pollinators so I love to see the clover in my lawn when I see the clover I know that my bees will be happy in the fall so cutting your lawn a little longer and letting those little clovers and other little flowers stay in there and as well in your garden is a really important thing we can do. Not using any pesticides in our lawns or gardens is something that's very important, not only for pollinators, but also those lawn and garden chemicals. If you're not using them, then they won't run off with rain into the waterways where they um, do Uh other harmful damage to aquatic organisms. Yes. And Um, And then um, by clipping our lawn a little longer, not only can we leave the clover in, but the lawn is actually healthier. It can store more water and moisture and get through the hot summer days better.
2: Mm, Great. And is there any uh, correlation between uh, GMOs and the bee collapse?
3: Well, there hasn't been um, a correlation that's been made, but one thing for sure is that the GMO crops that are being used and actually expanding their uses, unfortunately, um, also create this monoculture in the fields that means that, we, that farmers using those crops are using more pesticides, um, and that's because their, their GMO crops are becoming resistant, so they're actually increasing the amount of pesticides they're using, as well as it's killing all the other things in the field that would actually provide food sources for pollinators. Mm.
0: And, yeah, I just want to comment on your your earlier statement on the lawn. When we keep it a little longer, it absorbs more moisture and is therefore more drought-resistant and a little healthy and stronger for the summer Um Important note there that that means or could mean that the gardener doesn't need to use fertilizer, which in many cases is, is synthetic. Uh, very often, further impacting the environmental load, of course, of of the microcosm of its own yard, and waterways, etc., um, mm-hmm. outside of his yard. So you know, a, a small thing like keeping your 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 garden at home an inch longer makes has a huge chain reaction and effect and benefit if you do so on your lawn itself and every critter that depends on it far or wide could be you know salmon 100 miles downstream that is not impacted by synthetic fertilizer because of that so great great tips there Sita you had a, another question
1: I did but before I ask my question I just wanted to ask you Jennifer to repeat something you said in the first part of the interview which I thought was so impactful you said that f- that we've lost 40% of the bee population in the last 10 years is that what I heard you say? It is um to clarify that
3: 40% of our commercial um bees are honeybees in oh. the last 10 years and if we lose another if we lose at the same rate in the next 10 years we won't be able to effectively pollinate our own crops in the US. And I mean, then that's a what, yeah, really wild...
0: Thanks for bringing that up again, Sita. What would happen then? What if we don't stop it early enough? Then what? We ship in bees just for poll- pollination or the food would come from somewhere else. What's the consequence?
3: Yeah, I think both um, of those possibilities, we'd have to import a lot more bees, which would uh, potentially bring in more diseases um, and things like that that are a real concern, and in addition, import more food, which would, of course, drive up the cost, energy costs as well as, as costs to the consumer. I mean, it's a dramatic statement, and it has dramatic implications. Um, and then, of course, I mean, from a, a an impact on beekeepers, it's very serious, because these beekeepers, these are like their, your original family farmer. I mean, these people are people that, you know, inherited their bee operations sometimes from their their fathers and grandfathers, Um Many of them are multi-generational beekeepers, and they're losing. They're losing in the last ten years. We're losing those farmers. They're losing their family farm, which is these these
1: bees. So you gave us a lot of really great tips about what we can do at home to create an environment that's good for the bees. What about purchasing practices? What can we do to ensure that we can have more vibrant bee colonies and more population. I mean, how how does honey factor into this? How do any of our beeswax purchases, anything that that would be a bee product or a product that somehow affects the bees, what can we do with our dollars? Well, I think the most important thing, um, which will actually save money, is um,
3: just simply not apply any pesticides or fertilizers to your lawn and garden around your home. And some many counties um, and. And uh, communities in the U.S. and in Canada have actually passed bans against cosmetic uses of pesticides. And not just in homes, but schools and golf courses. These are large areas with huge intensive pesticide uses. So not only to save money by not using them around your own home and garden and lawn, but encourage your neighbors to do the same. One thing I've done is I've put up a little sign in my yard that says that I don't use any um, fertilizers or pesticides, and I hope that encourages other people walking by. My lawn looks great. It's one of the healthiest ones on my block, and the reason why is... I let it um, go a little longer, it gets a little thicker, I let the edges reseed itself, I let the grass go up to seed, and that actually continuously reseeds the lawn, and I don't have any weeds, I don't have any dandelions, I don't have any weeds, but I do have this clover, which I really like, Mm -hmm. and um, so those are the things we could do in our communities, we could also work in our schools, golf course areas, your residential local schools to encourage them. Um, not to use any pesticides and chemicals, um, and as well, we can also avoid um, weed and feed type products. These are the kind of products we put on our lawns that we think are fertilizers, but in fact, they include a
1: lot of pesticides in them as well. Mm-hmm. Well, and I've always, I have always wondered about honey and and beeswax candles, which I I, I seem to think could be supportive of. Colonies and bee populations, but it may actually be depleting bee colonies and bee populations. What, what's your understanding of that? Well, those kinds of things are kind of um, extra, sort of, side
3: commercial endeavors for beekeepers. Their their real way of supporting their families and making their income is pollinating crops. Mm -hmm. And then they do honey and these other things as well. So by buying local honey, you can support your local beekeepers. But in addition, when you buy local honey, um, not only is it very healthy, but there's a little bit of um, pollen um, components in that honey. And so for people who have allergies um if you eat a little bit of your local honey uh, um all winter every day put a little teaspoon in your on your oatmeal or in your coffee or tea for example um then comes spring um, you're going to have a much reduced reaction to the pollen in the air. I
1: love that. That's such great fantastic.
0: Advice. And then you know the eat local component. Of course, I know of many organizations as well as individual farms that have established or are in the process of establishing pollinator corridors, where there's an entire strip. Um, on an already organic farm, but entirely dedicated not to grow food, but really just to attract and provide habitat and food for pollinators from bees to bumblebees to, to, to other wasps that help in keeping pests down, etc. Um, really wonderful endeavors. So um, organic food, of course, in this case, again, going much further than personal and environmental health. Um, Be in this world. The collapse of honeybee colonies. Our topic today: Our guest, Jennifer Sass, senior scientist, NRDC. Um, NRDC.org, Natural Resource Defense Council. Jennifer, if if people want to get involved, um, what does uh, NRDC offer uh, individuals or consumers as resources?
3: Well, one of the things um, I'd like to note um, to your listeners is that when you become a member of NRDC, which only costs a few dollars a year, it's not very exp- expensive at all. We rely on our membership to um, when we file court cases. So we do a lot of litigation on pesticides to try and get better, safer regulation of pesticides. And in order to make the claim to the court that we have the right to be there getting better pesticide regulations, getting more health protective pesticide regulations, we have to make the argument that we're doing this on behalf of our members that gives us status in court. So it's your few dollars to become a member actually gives us the right to go to court to protect you and your environment including the bees
0: on our behalf. So yeah, thank you very much Jennifer. Great to have you. Um please keep um busy bee <laughs> in this topic and in your great work of reviewing the data and analyzing um, all these environmental challenges that we face. And, um, yeah, we hope we'll get an update from you sometime down um, maybe in, in the fall or spring next year um, to, to see what regulations has become here in the U.S. after, again, the U- European Union has already made headlines uh, for a two-year moratorium on neonicotinoids. Thank you again, Jennifer Sass, Senior Scientist at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Great to speak with you today. Thank
1: you. Thank you. Thanks,
0: Jennifer. Whew, yes. There's a lot to understand and cover, and so important. I mean, this romantic picture of a, a lush farm with a beehive, single beehive, or two, three hives, um, you know, but when you really understand the importance of bees for the overall ecology, um, really from that hive, that that hive kind of defines our quality of life and our very existence. Amazing.
2: <laughs> it's uh, it spending so much time in agriculture, as I, and I mentioned about the produce department. It just really makes you realize just how how much is touched by these amazing creatures that are around us all the time and that are in in danger of uh, not being here.
0: And she spoke of apples, right? Apples and pears, and um, oh my! That's what brings us right into the next topic. You're listening to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. I'm Mark Mokehi, and I'm C.J. Ronnie Palmer. <laughs> Coming up is the weekly update of what's going on on the produce dock and in the world of produce. What's in season with Mark Mokehi? That and more when we come back. Stay tuned.
4: Fry Vineyards Mendocino County Award winning wines without added sulfites, available at grocery stores and online at frywine.com. That's F R E Y W I N E.com.
1: Produce is ever changing, seasons coming and going. At Earl's Organic, we have been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. Since 1988, Earl's Organic Produce has been establishing strong relationships with growers and developing a deep understanding of the seasons so you can offer the most delicious organic produce to your customers, staff, and clients year-round. For organic produce, visit Earl's
3: Organic
2: Produce at earlsorganic.com. That's earlsorganic.com.
0: Life's a game, and so is work. And just like any game, sometimes your team is in a slump. Maybe it's a new team, maybe there's conflict, maybe you're under pressure to keep up with your own success. Whatever it is, it is time to get your game face on. The Ultimate Game of Work combines game design with executive coaching to create high-engagement workplaces. Boost your team's creativity and performance by designing the game you want to play and win together with The Ultimate Game of Work. Enticed? Learn more at ultimategameofwork.com dot com.
5: Are you committed to green, socially responsible and sustainable business practices? Percepticon can help with eco-friendly internet solutions, website design services, e-commerce solutions, mobile apps and high performance internet hosting for your business. Percepticon is a full service agency that specializes in web consulting, strategy and technology development so you can successfully communicate with your audience. Lighten your tech footprint in a green hosting environment. Call Percepticon today at 925-937-9000 or visit them at Precepticon i
0: And we are back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And
1: I'm Sita Ronnie Palomar.
0: And now here's our weekly feature, the overview by our very own Mark Mulcahy of what's going on in the world of produce. Here is what's in season. What's in season, Mark? Well, bef-
2: I, I'm going to tell you in just a second, but I want to make sure <laughs> that, I, that I, I have a correction to something I said earlier. And NCAP is the Northwest Coalition for Alternatives to Pesticides. Um, and that website is www.pesticide.org. Oh,
0: you said it was against pesticides. There is
2: a national coalition, which I'm also part of, but I just got the acronyms wrong, and so I just want to make sure that people are understanding. NCAP, what I'm talking great. About. What's the website again? It's www.pesticide.org.
0: Easy. And now here's what's in season. Yeah. What s- do we make out of all this?
2: Well, uh, Jennifer <laughs> was talking about <laughs> apples and pears and things being pollinated by bees, and Earl and I wanted to talk about uh, the California apple season and the California pear season and what's happening with them, and just kind of apple and pears in general. Earl, are you there?
1: I am. Hello. Hello, Hello. sir. Welcome to the show. <laughs> on the,
2: on, We have Earl Herrick, the voice of the market from Earl Earl's Organic Produce in San Francisco. Um, Earl, so what's going on with apples and pears?
4: Well, we're just beginning the season for the last couple weeks now, and this is a great time because you get a lap over the end of the summer fruit, you know, the ending up of the, of the stone fruit of peaches and pears, uh, excuse me, peaches and plums and berries are still available. And then you get this wonderful fall fruit coming in. It looks like a great year. Uh, it's been a good setup, meaning that the fall, uh, the spring and the winter, You got it was cold enough that the, the trees got some dormancy, which they need to recover and, and get strong, Then they had a nice... A uh, fairly mild spring, so they had a good set of blossoms. And as the summer summer has gone on, there has been some heat spells, nothing too drastic for tree for the pear and apple trees. And then as we get into harvesting now, uh, it's it's really perfect. It's warm, but not too warm, and and the weather's been good, so uh, the uh, pickers have been able to get out there and, and do some harvesting now. What also makes this wonderful, not only with a lap over of summer and fall, is that you have an opportunity that only lasts for a couple weeks, maybe a month. And that opportunity is to get into varieties that you won't see uh, other times of the year. I mean, you may be thinking to yourself, apples, I'm going to wait a little while. There's still this this stone fruit to get. Uh, I can get them all winter, but there are some varieties. Uh, that are that are mostly indigenous to certain regions, whether it's Wisconsin or Michigan or upstate New York, of course the West Coast, and of course California, where they're only grown here. every little region has their specific varieties that whether it's through personal choice, uh, geography, the environmental pressures that they are grown here. So can you can you say time. some
0: can you say some some names there, Mark? Too Mark and Earl. What what are oh, some varieties that you may find in a really well committed and well kind of stocked natural food store? What's out there right now?
4: Well, let me name a couple: uh, Jonathan, McIntosh, Gold.
2: If you what? were if you were going somewhere else in the country, you'd be finding Baldwin's, Cortlands. You know, there's there's just hundreds of varieties of apples. When I go to if I go to Albany, New York, they're starting the fresh crop there and they they'll have they'll have thirty apples in a in, in oh, produce department. Wow. All being picked <laughs> and all being run. Well and are these are, these incredible. have a short
1: season then? We wouldn't see them at yeah. Thanksgiving, for example.
2: They don't store well. Well, it's a combination <laughs> of both. So exactly. what like what Earl's saying, like here in California, we're just about done with the grav season, the gravenstein season, if we're not already done with it and mm-hmm. and it's we're pretty about, much finished up. And we're about ready to come on with California Fujis, which yep. which is different than the Fuji that you eat from Washington, even though it's the same apple.
4: You know, some of the some of the uh the issues are uh some of the, the the trees um with some of these varieties they don't produce a lot of apples. So economically maybe it's it's not the best thing to do or they don't store well or they're not particularly pretty or you know, things like that. They don't pollinate. They're all alternate bearing. So all these little issues, unless you're committed to having something special that you can just keep on the tree a couple weeks later for it to develop that nuance that you're not going to find other than in a small store, uh, a farmer's market, or maybe make friends with the guy down the road.
0: I love that. Um, you pick. You pick picking. So it's a bumper year. I love saying yeah. that, but that's what I hear. Yeah. It's a really yep. exceptional year. Um, and that's wonderful. And I'm German. I think I said that last year around this time when you guys picked. That you were German? YouTube. Yeah. yeah. You was, say that about I was everyone. German <laughs> last year. No, do. but um, <laughs> really, apple and pear is what, what's grown in, throughout Germany and especially in northern Germany. Actually, yeah. the, uh, the area outside of Hamburg, the largest apple-growing region in Europe. So, hmm. um, Yeah, what about that? Um, So this is kind of the time. Um, This is the time for many different crops, but apple and pears, and it's so wonderful to hear that, of course, there are hundreds and hundreds of varieties, but even in stores, you can still find 30, 40 different varieties nowadays in this time. I remember when the first apple of the season, I don't know what it was, Mark and Earl, you, you will know, in like six weeks back, two months back, there was the first relatively local, regional apple coming in. All the apples were on the wall they were all coming in from Chile and Argentina and whatever. And this was the first local apple. I think Lo- it was
1: the Gravensteins. Yeah. Oh, That's yeah, please. of course.
0: Exactly. The first apple. And, and it had its own little area because the, the produce They're department so was so they were proud of it. It was the first whole basket of Gravenstein apples. And now, of course, you don't find last year's crop stored anymore at all. You still find Chile and Argentina, which are almost year-round, I guess. Right, mm-hmm. that well, it's
2: the end of their season, oh, it is. and so people are still getting some deals on those as as domestic apples are coming into play. So there's still there is still some uh, quantities of those around.
0: But, but in terms of origin, this is the time to look for or ask the produce guy in the department. Is this a wherever, whatever state you're in, is this a domestic apple, right? Because that's really, you could still buy a Chile or Argentine one, but of course, why would you right now? This is it. it,
2: The interesting thing that you're asking there, Helga, is that, If you go to the East Coast or you go to Wisconsin, it's going to be really obvious because they're going to make a really big deal about all their local Mm -hmm. apples. Nice. The more you get into some of the larger markets, even here in California, they're starting to make bigger deals about local. But you can easily just think that apples, as Earl started, that there's just always a granny. But what about a Pippin and what about... Um, a lot of these different apples that you only see for short periods of time a, a Newton Pittman or a yeah. Newtown Pippin, depending on how you, you choose to say it that's only here for a short time and it's a completely different green apple flavor than you're going to get with that Granny Smith that's here all sure. year round
0: or a Spitzenberg or
2: a, or a... Spitzenberg oh. right there so what's
0: how do you how do you navigate through we're almost out of time but how do you navigate through the world of flavor when you have 30 different varieties buy one oh. each and try them all and like how, yeah Mark is Mark not That's any. right. But,
4: you, know, you know definitely is <laughs> again you have this this uh, cornucopia. <laughs> and you and you just wanna grab a couple and then see what, what what you like. You know, I do wanna mention before we get out get off the line, is that this is the time where you can exercise some power because the department many times is going to reflect the buyer's point of view. Sure. So if you can go in and say, Hey, do you happen to have a Jonathan, do you happen to have a Cortland, do you happen to have a Um, uh, a Macon, they, you know, they'll go, wow, I don't even know that. They'll do a little research and they'll go and find that. So the more that we can educate ourselves and ask for what we want, you know, a good produce department is going to get, get what they're being, uh,
0: get nice. the request and they're coming through. Maybe consider an apple party these days where you really buy, you know, two different, different apples and slice them up and invite your friends. And just there like we go. do beer parties sometimes, try all the different apples. And so have people bob fun. for them. And then so whatever fun.
2: one they come up with, that's the one they get to try. That's right. <laughs> Thank you, Earl. <laughs> so one so one great. last thing. Yes. One last
4: thing. Michigan has a bumper, bumper crop four times as big as it was two years ago. So, you know, we might even see some Michigan apples leak around outside of their regional area. Good so, for them. So, um, you know, he- heads, ha- uh, hats off to the Michigan market. Yes. Well, there you go. <laughs> Great, Cheryl. So, always you, a pleasure. Earl. Thank you, right. Thank you. So far, see you later. Thank Bye. you. And thank you, Mark.
1: Now I'm in the mood for some apples. Yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Me
0: too. <laughs> we didn't really get into pairs, but same for pairs, right?
2: So maybe we could talk about them next week. Yeah, we will.
1: That would be great. Thank well, you so much. That was this week's edition of an organic conversation. Thanks for listening.
2: Bye bye.
4: better way without you but they don't know your life.